This week is Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 22 to chapter 4 verse 17. And we're going to see Ezekiel do some prophesying. It's the siege and destruction of Jerusalem portrayed. So let's do a memory verse. Let's read a memory verse together first. So Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that we know that it's true because of one of the reasons is prophecy. You have not let one word fall to the ground. Everything that you have predicted that should have happened by now has happened exactly as the Bible said, literally. The literal virgin birth, the literal resurrection, bodily from the dead. All these things, Father. Everything exactly as you said. And so thank you for the truth of your word and thank you that we can come to this and know that you're teaching us all about you and how we can live a life that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week we're going to learn about walking by faith or by sight. So it's about keeping my eyes on God and not my circumstances. Secondly, being enabled for service by the Holy Spirit. I can't, but God can. And then Ezekiel's difficult calling, serving God is going to require great sacrifice. And then we're going to get into chapter 4, where we're going to read and learn about Ezekiel's first action sermon. So, and that's the siege of Jerusalem portrayed. Now, God has a good sense of humor, and God, I think he would be a good actor as well, because he got his prophets to do some pretty good acting. He's very creative. That's why we are creative, because God's creative. They didn't only speak the message, they also lived it and dramatized it. So the people's hearts were really hard, the Israelites. So God went to these extreme measures to make the message interesting for them, to get their attention. And God does the same with us today. God can allow us to go through difficult circumstances. God can allow us to see some difficult things and that gets our attention and causes us to look to him. So for Ezekiel, life's going to get real difficult. It's going to get difficult as he obeys God and does what God says. And we'll find out more about that later. As he portrays Jerusalem under siege and the hunger and the thirst that's going to happen to those people. So first though, let's read Ezekiel chapter 3 verses 22 and 23. It says, Then the hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Arise, go out into the plain, and there I shall talk with you. So I arose and went out into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. So I've titled this bit, Big God, Little Problems, or Little God, Big Problems. <laughs> It depends on your perspective, right? Walking by faith or walking by sight. Why do you think God has revealed himself to Ezekiel three 
times in this majestic, awesome vision where he's got this massive chariot with the wheels and the four powerful angels and then the platform and then the throne and Jesus on top, way above. And every time Ezekiel sees it, he's just like flat in his face. It's just the glory, the Shekinah glory of God, and he's in the presence, direct presence of God. Why do you think God has done this three times? Hmm. I have a, a theory. I'm going to read a quote from a guy called Block. Although this is the third time he sees the kabod, the physical presence or glory of the Lord, the sight still catches him by surprise and overwhelms him with awe. His relationship with God never becomes familiar or casual. Even a commissioned and authorized spokesman must prostrate himself in the presence of God. So the application for us. Do I still come into God's presence day by day with awe and reverence? Or am I bored and unimpressed? Am I really keen to be in God's presence? So while I may or may not be physically prostrate before him, my attitude towards God is important. So do I see myself as weak and small and helpless before God and therefore seek his help and choose to live in complete dependence upon him? Or have I lost my appreciation of the greatness and majesty of God and therefore try to solve my problems using my own strength? So the more I draw near to God, the smaller my problems appear. And that's why it's so important that I choose to draw near to God by allowing God to reveal himself to me as I prayerfully read the word of God each morning. And now the opposite is true. I can make the choice not to draw near to God too, right? And what's going to happen there? <laughs> if God is small, then my problems become big. And it's also easier to sin. And I found in my own life that a problem or temptation that today might be only an annoyance can tomorrow overwhelm me if I lose my divine perspective. We can be thinking, well, you know, you might be thinking, I didn't have a problem with that yesterday. Why am I struggling so much today? Well, where's God in your life? Have you put God first today? So, I can use how I perceive my problems and trials in life as a measure of how close I am to God. And this is a day-by-day -day thing. The closer I am walking with God, and therefore the more I am depending on God, then the more my fear and despair is replaced by courage, rejoicing, and hope. Why? Because my hope is in God. And will God let me down? Never. Now, King David... His prayers are hope-filled and victorious. Was that because he was always happy and in good situations? No. It's because he had a right perspective of God. Most of the time, we're going to say that David didn't always have the right perspective. But King David can show us how to change our perspective into a perspective where we put God first and we draw near to him. So Psalm 39 verse 7. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. And the same verse in a different translation. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. So 
to wait on the Lord is to trust the Lord. So David here is asking an important question. In whom or in what am I putting my hope or my trust? What does he say? And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My hope, my only hope is in you. And that's what he's saying. And then in Psalm 34, I'm going to read some verses from Psalm 34, not the whole psalm, just uh, selected verses. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So when does David bless the Lord? At all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth, not just in the good times, but in the bad times too. I sought the Lord. I drew near to the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from how many fears? All my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him. What's David's attitude towards himself? Small feeble, weak, you know, this poor man, this little man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of how many troubles? All his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Remember, we're in New Testament now, so we're talking physical things. We're talking about our hearts. We will never lack relationship with God and the joy and the peace and the love that that brings if we choose to be following him. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. So this is a humble heart. The Lord is near to us when we humble ourselves before him. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So if you're a righteous person, how many afflictions are you going to have? Many, yeah. But what's the promise here? The Lord will deliver you out of them all. So this is what the Christian walk is all about. We can expect trouble. We can expect hardship. But we have a faithful God who is going to be with us during and through the trials. So choosing to draw near to God and enjoying deep and abiding fellowship leads to amazing confidence and joy. But why is this so? How can we experience this? Well. I've got a quote from Chuck Smith. He said, The difficulty of the task is measured by the agent doing the work. So think about that. If God is the one doing the work, is there any task or problem or temptation that is actually difficult or big? <laughs> it's not, is there? So imagine this. If I had to move a one-ton concrete block, if I had to do it myself, I'll be dreading the task. I'll be thinking, how am I going to move one ton of concrete all by myself? But if you give me a crane, I just get the levers and, you know, a couple of levers moved here and the cranes move the concrete block and it's, it's a piece of cake. So this is the point. If I'm distant from God, 
choosing to neglect my walk with him by not reading and obeying his word, then I'll forget how powerful and holy he is. I'll lose perspective. God becomes small in my perspective and my problems appear insurmountable. Everyday tasks become difficult and burdensome and sin becomes so much more attractive. So think about David fighting Goliath. The Israelite army, they're shaking in their boots, literally shaking in their boots. So the Israelite army's spiritual perspective is that God is small and Goliath is huge. But David was the opposite. Because David was walking in close fellowship with God, he had a different perspective of God and therefore also a different perspective of Goliath. All right? He was walking by faith. He was aware of the presence of the unseen God and not by sight and what we see and what we feel and what we experience. So here's part of the account. I'm going to read it from 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 47. David replied to the Philistine, to Goliath, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you. Notice that. The Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. So I pulled out three points from that passage that I think will help us. The first one is the basis for our hope and confidence is it's his battle and not mine. This is the Lord's battle. Today the Lord will conquer you. This is the Lord's battle. So whether it be temptation, whether it be a trial we're going through, a sickness, uh, financial difficulties, it's the Lord's battle. It's not yours. So the key to resting in the Lord is to understand that God allowed the circumstances. He's in control, so trust him for the victory. Remember, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And the motive of our hope and confidence is all glory to God. David said, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, and everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. So we should be seeking deliverance, seeking to be made whole, seeking to be healed, seeking to be whatever, so God is glorified. Not so we feel good, not so we're better off, but so God is glorified. That's what David's motive was. And the third point here is that the method of our hope and confidence is God's way using God's resources. Remember, David said, God will conquer, but not with sword and spear. And so for us in the New Testament, we are fighting a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons. And you can see Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. Now, another account which will help us to see the difference in perspective and how it can change in an instant. Elisha and his servant. So 2 Kings 6, 11 to 17. The king of Aram, or Syria, became very upset over this. He called his officers together and demanded, Which of you is the traitor? Who has been informing the king of Israel of my plans? Is not us, my lord the king? One of the officers replied, Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. <laughs> Amazing, eh? And the king of Syria says, Go and find out where he is, so I can send troops to seize him. 
And the report came back, Elisha is in Dothan, that's in Israel. So one night the king of Syria sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. When the servant of the man of God, Elisha's servant, got up the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. That's the human perspective, right? Panic, fear, yeah? Elisha has a different perspective. Listen to what he says. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. The divine perspective, calm assurance of God's greatness. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. (laughs) Amazing, eh? And this is a dramatic change in perspective. The servant no longer feared the king of Syria and his puny little human warriors when there's angelic warriors on our side, yeah? God is on our side. And there's a whole story that follows that, but you can read it yourself. So Psalm 13 is also a great scripture which helps us to illustrate this change of perspective. It's a good example. Taking our eyes off ourselves and then putting back on God. This is King David, and I'm just going to read three verses which show where he came from, how he changed, and how he ended up. So verse 2, it says, How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? So this is you talking to yourself, having your own little pity party, self-focused, is your depressing self-talk, you know. Oh, poor me, all my problems. I'm having counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily. I'm talking to myself. That's where he's at. Then verse 3, he prays, Consider and hear me, O Lord, enlighten my eyes. So David is asking God to change his perspective. David looks to God and asks God to help him shift his focus from himself to God. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So I will, future, sing to the Lord because he has, past tense, dealt bountifully with me. One of the things we need to do is remember that God in the past has been faithful and therefore he will be faithful in the future. And therefore we can still sing and praise God no matter what we're going through in the present. So, the main point here is the two different perspectives, human and divine, and also the change in perspective that happens when our eyes are opened. If I'm walking by sight, I'm focused on my circumstances, emotions, looking for experiences, then the problems and trials of this world will easily overwhelm me, just like the Israelite army, Elijah's servant, and King David at times. However, if you have our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, like in Hebrews 12 too, then our perspective will be so, so different. With God as the agent doing the work, the problems don't even seem like problems anymore. Why? Well, it's God. Anything's easy for God. Now, God had to remind many of his servants in the past when they were overwhelmed and started complaining. 
it's okay to feel overwhelmed, okay? It's okay to lose perspective. We all do it. And God reminds us, and he says this in the scriptures many times, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And you can read it for yourself. Abraham, Genesis 18, 14. Moses, Numbers eleven twenty three. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 32, 27. Even Mary, in Luke 1, 37. They all got to a place in their life where they said it's too hard. And God says, change your perspective. Is there anything that's too hard for me to do? And they go, ah, well, not really. Okay. Let's rethink this. So like them, all we need is a change of perspective. And we're going to see why Ezekiel needed to have the divine perspective. He's got a really tough road ahead of him. And God reveals himself to us as we read his word. Not so we can go, oh, wasn't that a great experience? I feel good. No. But so we would be prepared for the coming trial and to overcome any sin. So let's move on to verses 24 to 27. And this is talking about being enabled by the Holy Spirit. And there's a really good thing here where it's the Spirit who enters him and speaks through him, but the Spirit says, thus says the Lord God. So here we have the Holy Spirit signing off with, thus says the Lord God. And so it's clear evidence that this is an Old Testament evidence that the Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. So let's read verse 24. Then the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet and spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself inside your house. And you, O son of man, surely they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so that you cannot go out among them. I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, so that you shall be mute and not be one to rebuke them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. So again, I want to just show you from the Old Testament here that the Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. So look at verse 24 and 27. Then the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet and spoke with me and said to me, But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. So the Spirit speaking says, I'm God. It's God speaking to you. So clearly the Holy Spirit is God. Previously, it was Jesus speaking from the throne to Ezekiel and saying, thus says the Lord God. So Jesus is also God. But now it's a spirit doing it. And for us in our age now in the New Testament, it's the spirit who's in us, who empowers us, who comes upon us and who speaks through us, gives us boldness. And that's the next section. The Holy Spirit gives us the words to speak. Now, verse 26 and 27, it says, I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and not be one to rebuke them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Got a quote from John Corson. Ezekiel would be rendered speechless until God himself opened his mouth. Wouldn't that be wonderful if it were true of us? We talk about needing the power of the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God. 
But sometimes we need the power of the Holy Spirit to keep us quiet. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of wisdom here. I think we should be praying, God, please keep my mouth shut. I get myself into a lot of trouble at speaking when I shouldn't. So this is the same for the New Testament. New Testament believers all have the Holy Spirit in them, but we need to be equipped and empowered for ministry by the Holy Spirit upon us. You can see Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 2, and chapter 4, verse 31. And there's a promise in Mark 13, 11 that Jesus gives. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So, as it was back then, it is today as far as the Holy Spirit coming upon and giving you the boldness. The application for us? Who gets nervous when they... It's time to talk to people about God. Yeah? We all do. And we wouldn't be human if we didn't. Why? Because our sinful nature does not want us to be sharing the gospel. The sinful nature is going to be putting fear into you. You're going to be using this self-talk. You know, Your sinful nature is going to be telling you, don't talk to them. They're going to eat you alive and spit out the bones, if you've heard that phrase before. But what we do need to know before we share the gospel is the gospel. We can't expect the Holy Spirit to tell us what to speak if we don't know what to speak. That's how God works. He brings things to remembrance that we have read previously in the Bible. You can see John 14, 26. So once we have studied the gospel, it's just a matter of being willing to overcome our fear by stepping out in faith and being willing to start talking. So Ezekiel was like this. He studied the scriptures in order to be a priest, and yet he only spoke what God the Holy Spirit told him to speak. So the Holy Spirit was bringing back to remembrance what Ezekiel had learned. So now we move on to the difficulty of Ezekiel's calling. This is what it's like for us sometimes too, isn't it? As a Christian, it's hard. It's hard work. Verse 24, Go, shut yourself inside your house. Most of us had COVID and had to self-isolate. Is that pleasant? Not really, is it? Okay. But this is for an indefinite period of time. The application here is it's not uncommon to feel lonely in ministry as many will either reject us, misunderstand us, disagree with us, or just simply they're in such a bad place that they can't show their appreciation to us as God begins to heal them. So we need to be solid and mature in our relationship with God before we can help other people. And that's why God had to get Ezekiel's perspective right so he could talk to these people and not be discouraged by them. Verse 25, And you, O son of man, surely they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so that you cannot go out among them. <laughs> what happened to Jesus when they didn't like his message? Crucified him. What happened to Ezekiel when they didn't like his message? They bound him with ropes. So the world is going to do what it can to silence our witness, the witness of us as believers, but God has the final say. Now Tertullian, and he's an early church father in Africa from about 155 to 255 AD. He was very familiar with persecution and he said this famous quote, 
The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And you're then great. What does that mean? Well, the church only really grows when it's persecuted. We only grow when we go through hard times. So we as a church should see persecution as an opportunity and not something to avoid. And there's the same with the hard times that we go through personally. Use it as an opportunity for growth, to develop your character. When I was just a couple of weeks ago, you know, at home with my sore throat and that, I had no desire for chocolate. It was very easy to say no to chocolate. <laughs> but now I'm better. It's very difficult to say no to chocolate. <laughs> okay. Basically, when we're being persecuted, the concept here is that I don't care about my fleshly appetites. I don't care about that sin. I don't care about what I want, what my flesh is crying out for. All I'm doing is surviving and I'm putting my faith in God. I'm asking God for help. See, it's taken my focus of me being just there to pursue my own pleasure and instead I'm now having to trust God because I'm in this difficult circumstance. So isn't it amazing how our fleshly appetites are diminished when we're suffering? And so suffering is a good thing in this sense. I'm not saying we should ask for it, but when it happens, it's okay. Use it as a good thing. It's going to help you to overcome your sin. It's going to help you to put God first. And one of the big things in our materialistic world is you want to be comfortable, you want to have a good standard of living and all this kind of stuff. And we're very self-focused. That's this world system and its draw on us. Now verse 27, it says, For they are a rebellious house. And it literally means a house of rebellion, a nation that is characterized by rebellion. And this represents mankind as well. Who seeks after God? No one. Romans 3.1 so Ezekiel wasn't sent to people who would appreciate him and thank him for delivering God's message to them and then all genuinely repent and follow God. <laughs> and the same is true for us today. Many people will reject the gospel. Jesus said to his disciples in his day, in Matthew 10, 16 and 17, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men. Whew. Verse 27 also says, He who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse. And here we see God's grace as he gives every person a free choice to hear or refuse, or regardless of how good or bad they are. None of us deserve this opportunity, but God desires all men to be saved. And we can read 1 Timothy 2, 3-6. This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. So God wants everyone to hear. And so verse 27 again it says, 
He who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse. So again, the responsibility to respond is on the hearer and not the person talking or sharing. And I quote here, the two Hebrew words, Hasama Yizma, literally let the hearer hear, or he who hears will hear, are the prototype for our Lord's favorite formula. And what did Jesus always say? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so the hearer's response is dictated by his inner being. And what does that mean? If your heart's humble, you'll respond. If your heart's proud, you won't respond. And what's the purpose of the law? Getting back to the gospel. We share the law. We go through the law to show people sin so their hearts will become soft. We're plowing up the hard ground. And what we're going to find is that God, through Ezekiel, constantly reminded the Israelites of their sins. And guess what happened? Years later, it was repentance. They came back. It wasn't a short-term project for Ezekiel. It was a long-term project. It was years later that they actually came to repentance. So our share in the gospel, we must be very patient and we must be ready to keep on sharing again and again and again because as we do that, the hearts will become softer and softer as we keep reminding them of their sin and they'll more and more to the need for a saviour and be more likely to respond. So we're going to jump into chapter 4 now. Uh, the siege of Jerusalem portrayed, and as an introduction, I've got a quote from John Corson. It says, Tens of thousands of Jews were now in the city of Babylon. During this time, false prophets began to come on the scene, saying that the Jews' stay in Babylon would be short, that they would be back in Jerusalem in no time at all. So God sent Ezekiel to tell the people that they would be in Babylon for a long time. The opposite message, see? that he had much work to do in their lives and that Jerusalem would soon be destroyed by the Babylonians as it was in 586 BC. That was Ezekiel's message, but he was to give it in a most unusual way, for God had rendered him speechless. Therefore, he would use Ezekiel to give a message not by speaking, but by acting. Having turned a deaf ear to his message, God would get the attention of his people in a different way. Now, Ezekiel's not the first one to act out his message. Isaiah was told to wear sackcloth and then walk around naked. You can see that in Isaiah 22 and 3. Wouldn't have been nice. I wouldn't have appreciated that job as a prophet. Quite embarrassing. And Jeremiah also gave action sermons, and you can see Jeremiah chapter 13. So God did use his servants to do some interesting things to try and get the attention of the people. Ezekiel 4, 1 and 2. This is drawing the siege, literally drawing on a clay tablet. You also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. Lay siege against it, build a siege wall against it and heap up a mound against it. Set camps against it also and place battering rams against it all around. So imagine being told to draw a picture and the way they used to do it back then before you know, cannons and guns and all that kind of stuff. Just bows and arrows and, and swords and stuff. They had a town with walls and the only way to get through was to either make a mound of dirt so you could climb up and get over or batter it with a big log or something and keep smashing it until the wall fell down. 
And they'd have a wall around the city, and so people couldn't escape from the city. That's why it was a siege. And they have camps, so the enemy camps would be around the city. So again, people couldn't escape. They were completely closed in. No food or water could get in, and no people could escape. And that's exactly what God told Ezekiel to draw. So he gets this clay tablet, and they used to use these clay tablets for recording writing back then. But Ezekiel is going to draw a picture of Jerusalem with this army surrounding it, with, with all the, the camps, battering ram, and the siege walls. Right, verse 3. This is the iron plate symbolizing separation from God. So, moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Okay, what kind of sign? What sign is this? Well, he's drawn the city of Jerusalem with all the armies coming against it, and then he moves away from it a bit and puts his iron plate between his drawing and himself. What does it mean? Wisby comments, the iron plate was the kind of utensil that the priests used in the temple for preparing some of the offerings. The iron griddle symbolized the wall that stood between God and the sinful Jewish nation so that he could no longer look on them with approval and blessing. So the sign to the house of Israel was that there was a separation between God and the Israelites. God would not intervene and rescue the people as was being taught by the false prophets and believed by the majority of the people. God is saying, this iron plate is like your sin. I am not able to help you because your sin is separating me from you. What does Isaiah 59 two say? Your sin has separated you from God. And what does James 1.5 say? Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So, what's the message of the false prophets? We can live for ourselves, we can do what we want without having to repent and with there being no consequences for our rebellion. And you can see Jeremiah 23. But the Bible clearly teaches that we must not be deceived into thinking that we will not reap what we sow. We will reap what we sow. If we sin, we will suffer. The practical consequences and God's discipline. Ezekiel 4, 4-6, and this is a picture of that forgiveness is available to these people. Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity or sin of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity or their sin. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity. According to the number of the days, 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. That's like the northern kingdom. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side, then you shall bear the iniquity sin of the house of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. Imagine that, lying on your left side for 390 days, and then on your right side for 40 days. A total of 430 days lying on your side, most of the day, every day. <laughs> it's over a year. You'd have your chalkboard seeds there, your clay tablet with the iron 
griddle, like the barbecue plate, and people are probably looking at you, what are you doing? Are you nuts? Are you out of your mind? But remember, that's what Jesus' family thought about him too. They thought he was nuts. He thought he was out of his mind. Mark chapter 3, verse 21. But why did God tell Ezekiel to do this? To bear their iniquity, their sin. So in the midst of judgment, God is giving the message of forgiveness. If they would only be willing to repent and receive God's forgiveness. Now, who bears our sin? Or who bore our sin? Yeah, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the sin of our soul. Jesus bore our sin. So it pains God to discipline his children and even more so to have to judge the unrepentant people. And part of the message that God gave the nation of Israel is, in chapter 33, verse 11, Say to them, as long as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way, repent, and live. Turn, repent, turn, repent from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? So God says it three times. Repent in that one verse. Turn, turn, turn. So the fact is that nobody needs to go to hell. And what was hell created for? Devil and his angels, that's right. So nobody needs to be judged for their sin because Jesus paid the full price for the sins of all people, 1 John 2, 2. So like the unrepentant Jews of Ezekiel say, they did not have to be judged. But by refusing to repent of their sins and turn to God, they were choosing judgment over forgiveness. And the same is true for the majority of people in the world today. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14 that few will choose to enter the narrow gate and the difficult path that leads to life and instead will choose the wide gate and the broad and easy way that leads to destruction. All right, let's move on to verses 7 and 8. And this describes God's powerful arm and certain judgment. Therefore, you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem. Your arm shall be uncovered and you shall prophesy against it. And surely I will restrain you so that you cannot turn from one side to another until you have ended the days of your siege. So again, most of the day he'd be laying on his side for over a year, 430 days. I quote here from David Guzik, In this acted out prophecy, Ezekiel demonstrated the strong arm of God's judgment against Jerusalem would be active and unrestrained. Now, God's arm is used as a symbol of his strength and power, and you can reference Numbers 11.23, Isaiah 50 verse 2 and 59 verse 1. I won't read them now. It's often used as a symbol of God's strength and power to save. Is the Lord's arm shortened that he cannot save is one of them, okay, in Isaiah. But here it's used as a symbol of his strength and power to judge. It's the opposite. So not being able to turn from one side to the other pictures the helplessness of the nation when they're under siege. There's no escape. They can't move. They can't go anywhere. Now, for Ezekiel, there is some saving grace here. God also said, you need to cook your dinner. And so basically, Ezekiel would be laying down 24 hours a day. He'd have some time to get up and cook his dinner. And he had to do this using cow dung. Would you like to use cow dung to cook your dinner? 
Hmm. All right. So this is these next few verses describe living out the famine that will result from the siege. So if you're under siege, there's no food coming in, there's no water coming in. You have to ration out what's left until you, until gone. So verses 9 to 11, Ezekiel 4. Also take for yourself wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt, and put them into one vessel, and make bread of them for yourself. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it, and your food which you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day. From time to time you shall eat it. You shall also drink water by measure, one-sixth of a hin. From time to time you shall drink. A quote here regarding the wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. The unusual bread was an acted-out prediction of life during siege, when anything and everything that could be eaten was. <laughs> this is not a normal bread mix, is it? They've had lentil, millet, spelt, barley, bean, wheat bread before. I haven't. So it was also carefully measured out. It's by weight, 20 shekels a day. As bread and water would be carefully weighed and rationed during a siege. So Adam Clark says, In times of scarcity, it is customary in all countries to mix several kinds of coarser grain with the finer to make it last the longer. So you don't have enough wheat flour, so you add stuff to it to make it go further. Verse 10, And your food which you shall eat shall be by weight. Now what is 20 shekels? Well, it's about 228 grams. So less than a quarter of a kilo of food as a ration for one man per day. It's not much. And drink water by measure. One-sixth of a hin, how much is that? It's about 600 mils. So imagine all you had to drink every day is one 600ml bottle of water. And a quote from Paul, Scarce enough to keep the man alive, such proportions of bread and water rather fed death than the man. You wouldn't survive very long on this. And that's why the city fell in the end, because the people just starved to death. It was putting off death, literally. So Ezekiel was living out the coming siege as a demonstration of coming events. And I bet he would have lost some weight. <laughs> Ezekiel 4, 12-15. Now, this describes what life is going to be like for those in the siege and afterward. Verse 12. And you shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. Then the Lord said, so shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, where I will drive them. So I said, Ah, Lord God, indeed I've never defiled myself from my youth until now. I've never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. Remember, he's a Jew. He doesn't eat pork and all those kind of things, right? Then he said to me, God said to him, See, I'm giving you cow dung instead of human waste and you shall prepare your bread over it. So, poor Ezekiel here. It's not that it was illegal or against the law to use cow dung or human excrement to cook your dinner, but it wasn't done by the Jews. Other countries, and still do it today, use cow dung as a cooking fuel, but they didn't. Imagine using human excrement. Imagine the smell as you're cooking. It'll be horrible. So Ezekiel's saying, please don't make me do that. Please, please don't make me do that. And God says, all right, you can just use cow dung instead. 
Now, why do you think that God said to use human excrement? It's because they'd kill all the cows, use them for food, and they wouldn't have cow dung to use. And so they'd have to use their own excrement. And that's basically exactly what would happen in the siege and after when they were still hungry and then being led away by the invading army. So in their sight, verse 12, it's day by day, Ezekiel was acting out and no doubt explaining what it meant as he did it. And the point was that people would hear and see and then tell other people, and so the word would get out. And verse 14, it says, Ah, Lord God, indeed I have never defiled myself. Now, application here, Ezekiel felt free to go to God and voice his concerns. And so God listened to him. God was gracious. He says, I understand. Okay, it's too much. This is what's really going to happen. They will be using human excrement. But I understand how you feel. You can just use cow dung. So as we sang in a song before, we can pour out our heart to God. We can tell him if it's too much for us. We can tell him if we're feeling overwhelmed. Because remember that God is for us and not against us. Okay? So when the trials become difficult, tell him how you feel. Let him know what's going on in your heart. And here we see Ezekiel showing, demonstrating the freedom to tell God how he felt. And God was merciful and gracious with him. And so I just want to point out that Moses and David and Jeremiah, they all felt overwhelmed at times. So just remember, God is for us, not against us. Just pour out your heart before him. Psalm 62 verse 8. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Now, the last couple of verses here, chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, and these talk about, do not be deceived, sin has consequences. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and shall drink water by measure and with dread, that they may lack bread and water, and be dismayed with one another, and waste away because of their iniquity, their sin. So what the false prophet's saying, it's all going to be good. God's going to defeat the Babylonians. All the people are going to come home. No, this is what's going to happen. This is the judgment that was coming upon those unrepentant Jews who remained in Jerusalem because of their sin. Now, previously we covered a parable in Jeremiah chapter 24 about the good and the bad figs. God had already removed the righteous people from Jerusalem by the previous two exiles. So Daniel and Ezekiel were already removed from Jerusalem in the previous two attacks on Jerusalem by the Babylonians. They had taken a lot of the people already, the good people. And God gave Jeremiah this vision of the figs. And the bad figs were the unrepentant ones who were still stuck in Jerusalem and they would face this siege. The good people, God had actually forced them to leave, but the Babylonian army had taken them by force and put them in Babylon and they think, this is horrible, but actually no, you're in a much better place, you're going to escape this siege. So God shows mercy in judgment. There's another principle here I just want to quickly explain. God doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked. Genesis 18.25, Abraham says to God, there's no way, God, that you can judge 
the righteous with the wicked, talking about Lot. You've got to get Lot out of there. And he went through the whole thing, 50 people, 40 people, etc. So Lot, Noah, the church at the rapture, we're all going to be spared judgment because God doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked. The people in Jerusalem were the ones who refused to repent and were fully deserving of this judgment. Yet God still showed them mercy by leaving Jeremiah behind to speak to them. So, conclusion. When we walk by faith and not by sight, we will see God as bigger than our problems and trials and we will never have to fear. It's about having the right perspective. Secondly, it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to be witnesses for Christ. He will give us the words to speak, though we need to first study the word to get them into our hearts. And three, sharing the message will never be easy and will always require a lot of sacrifice. And remember that our highest motive and greatest satisfaction is to bring glory to God. It's not about me, it's about God. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Ezekiel. Lord, if we're going to be ready to minister to other people, we need to have the right perspective. We need to understand that you are a big God. You're a powerful God. Lord, you can do anything. You're an infinite God. And that you love us and that you're in control. And because of all these things, we can have confidence that no matter what happens in our lives, Lord, you will be faithful to deliver us from all those things. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So we just hold on to that promise today. And Ezekiel, is the next 35 years or whatever it was, he's going to be holding on to that same promise. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. As his own countrymen tie him up and abuse him and mock him and all those things. So we just pray. Help us, Father, have the right perspective in Jesus' name. Amen.